Well, hey, so glad you guys could join us today, and if this is your first Sunday at First Church, we have other family members right now meeting out at Stone Canyon and also Verdigris, so if you would put your hands together and welcome them into our family room here today. Jeff Fines is the lead minister at Christ Church of the Valley in Southern California, and he tells a story about a time when he was still a missionary in New Zealand, and he had this moment with his son that he'll never forget. They went to the New Zealand Open. Somebody gave him some tickets to this very prestigious golf tournament, and they had a blast watching different professional golfers there. But at one point, as they were going from hole to hole, his son, who is not quite a teenager yet, his name's Delaney, Delaney said, hey, Dad, I got to go to the bathroom. And so there wasn't a bathroom anywhere nearby. They're about as far away from the clubhouse as they could possibly get. And so Jeff is looking around trying to find a bathroom his son could use. And there he saw a line of porta potties. And he, like most of us, you know, didn't like porta potties, but you do what you have to do. And so he took his son Delaney over to these porta potties. Delaney goes in one, and Jeff waits for him to finish his business. Well, he's standing there, and he notices that there's a concession stand close by. And so Jeff walked over to the concession stand to buy a Coke. And then he was still, you know, he could see the porta potties, make sure his son was all right, bought the Coke, and he came back over. And by the time he came back over to the porta potties, he thought, you know, my son Delaney, he's had enough time to do what he needed to do, so he wanted to make sure he was all right. And so he started to knock on the porta potty door. There was no response, but Jeff could hear movement inside. Now, one thing you need to know about Delaney, he's kind of a practical jokester. He likes to play a lot of tricks. And if Jeff was here, he would say that morning he was already playing a bunch of uh, different practical jokes and he was goofing around a lot. So he knew that Delaney was trying to get him. And so he knocked again. He said, Delaney, you need to come on out of there and still no response but he could hear movement inside so Jeff knocked again he said Delaney come on out of there seriously still nothing it just if you don't come out of there I'm gonna turn this thing over and now Jeff's a pretty big guy he's a tall guy and so he put his hand on top of the porta potty and began to rock it just a little bit to try to get Delaney's attention Jeff said you could hear the you know the blue water swish around inside of the porta potty still no response and so Jeff said Delaney if you don't come out of there I really am going to do it so he grabbed the porta potty again he leaned it back just a little bit and set it back down you can hear that water swish around but still no response and so he's this is it it's your last chance I'm really going to flip it over and he grabbed the porta potty and he turned it he pulled it as far back as he could then he let it go and the porta potty just kind of went back and forth in place for a while then it settled down and as Jeff was watching the porta potty settle back in place he felt a tap on his back and he turned around and there was his son Delaney and Delaney's like dad what are you doing and he said I saw you go into that porta potty I watched you go in there and Delaney's like well yeah I did go in there but I went in there and it was nasty so I went decided to go to another one while you were getting a drink and so as Delaney is explaining all this the door opens and out comes this little sweet-looking Chinese lady from, uh, from the country of China there to see this golf tournament. She walked out, didn't know any English. Jeff is trying to explain to her what had just taken place. She's not understanding a bit of it, but she knew enough broken English to say to Jeff, you a very bad man. <laughs> And Jeff said after a little conversation with the police that afternoon, he was able to go back and finish watching the rest of the golf tournament. And I remember when he told that story, he said, you know, that drink, that Coke, cost me a lot more than I thought it would. Distractions will cost us. Distractions will get us into a lot of trouble. And that's not just true for our individual lives. It's also true for a church. And that's what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. 
Because we've been discussing how the larger a church gets and, an old, and the older a church becomes, the easier it is for a church to become distracted. And that always leads to trouble. That's why a few weeks ago, we unveiled a new mission statement for our church. In this mission statement, it's easy to say, it's easy to remember. It's only five words, two phrases, and it's this, love Jesus, love like Jesus. You guys probably know it by now. If you would together, say it out loud with me. Here we go. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. It's easy to say, it's easy to remember. And the reason why we unveiled this new uh, mission statement is because we decided as a leadership that way too many churches make the mission of Jesus too complicated. They take the mission that Jesus intended to be so simple and they weigh it down, they complicate it. So we followed the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus was asked the question, what's most important, God? Out of all of God's commandments, what's most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all of God's law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments, these two phrases. Jesus says, you want to know what's the most, most important to God? Love God, love Him with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as God has loved you. That's what's most important. So we here at First Church, we don't want to complicate things. We want for what God considers to be most important. That's what we want to be known for. We want to be a church that keeps the main thing the main thing and doesn't get distracted. And that's why we landed on this simple mission statement, love Jesus, love like Jesus. Because we believe that's what the church is supposed to be all about. And we believe that's what life is really all about. So that's our mission statement, love Jesus, love like Jesus. But our vision is to unleash a revolution of God's love. Because we believe here here at First Church, we've been placed at this point in history to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond, that God is going to use us in powerful ways to unleash His love on those who need it. And the way that we're going to do that is by unleashing our love on the four primary relationships that are emphasized in Scripture. So first of all, we want to be a church that grows in our love for God. And so we've come up with four expressions. And our first expression says, we want to be a church that relentlessly pursues God. We want our love for Him to come first. And then second, we want to be a church that grows in our love for our families. So our second expression says, we sacrificially serve our families. Third, we want to be a church that's known for investing in the next generation. We want to grow in our love for the next generation. Our kids, our grandkids, students, and other children that come to our church. So our third expression says, we intentionally invest in the next generation. And then fourth, we want to be a church that grows in our love for our neighbors. In other words, we want to be a church that generously extend, extends hope to everyone. And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. Regardless of your past, regardless of your background, regardless of your race or your economic status, we want to extend love to everyone. And we believe that when those four expressions become our DNA, we will unleash a revolution of love on the 918. We will be known as a dangerous church in the sense that we will be a church that poses a very real threat to the status quo of our culture. 
And so in this series, I'm unpacking these four expressions that I just uh, went through. And last week, we unpacked the first expression, which says, we relentlessly pursue God. And we talked about how before we can change the world with the love of Jesus, we have to first let the love of Jesus change us. But this week, we're going to look at the next expression, which says, we sacrificially serve our families. And with each of these expressions, we are attaching a challenge for our church And the challenge that goes along with this expression is this. We want 100%, 100% of spouses and families at First Church to pursue God and serve His mission together. The key word there being together. Because we believe in order for First Church to become the strongest and healthiest church possible that makes the impact on our communities that God wants us to make, We have to be filled with spiritually healthy spouses, parents, and children. In other words, we believe that strengthening families in our church and throughout the 918 will be a cultural game changer, a catalyst for unleashing a revolution of God's love throughout Northeast Oklahoma. Now, Satan, he doesn't want us to focus on this because Satan knows as long as he can keep families broken and and unhealthy, then he will keep us from fulfilling the mission that Jesus has entrusted us with, but also he will keep us from living the life that Jesus died for us to live. And I'm convinced that's why there's an all-out war being waged in our culture right now for our families, for our homes. And I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I mean, just look around our culture today, and it won't take you long to realize the family It's under attack. Many families are not what God intended them to be. And so today, we just want to let you know something. Regardless of what your family looks like right now, regardless of your family's background, what shape or size it may take, your family matters to our church. And the reason why your family matters to our church is because your family matters to God. And He wants it to be the best that it can be. We want to let you know up front, we realize that all families are different. Families come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, and that's okay. Every family has their own unique challenges and challenges and difficulties and issues. We get that. We understand that. I mean, let me ask you a couple quick questions. Uh, by show of hands at all of our campuses, how many of you have at least one family member that's uh, kind of hard to get along with, a little strange, maybe even embarrassing at times, a little weird? Anybody have a family member like that? Let me see your hands up high. Okay, now, how many of you are sitting beside that family member? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't fall for that. Don't do that at all. I want you to be able to have lunch with that person later on, okay? Don't do that. Uh, We all have family members that are a little bit odd, a little bit different. That's okay. I have a friend who preaches in Lexington, Kentucky, and he has a mother-in-law who grew up in a real small town, and she grew up down the road from a very unique family. In this family, there were three sets of twins. Now, they had seven total children, but they had three sets of twins, so six of them were twins, and this is what they named their kids. Are you ready? Nyla Ray and Wendell Clay, Norma Jean and Donald Dean, Mary Dan and Joanne, and Kenny. I mean, poor Kenny. I mean, that brother got left out. He didn't have anybody to rhyme with. All of our families are a little bit different. We all have our own unique issues and things that we deal with. We get that. No family is perfect, but we want you to know your family matters to God. And He wants it to be the best 
that it can be. And you know why? Because family, well, it was his idea. Most of you probably know what a blueprint is, right? You're familiar with blueprints. It's a document that basically outlines or draws out uh, the design of a structure. And I have with me today the original blueprints of our third phase of the North Garnett campus here at First Church. And I don't know how to read this thing. I have no idea how to read it. Um, I can scan through it and kind of get the gist of some stuff, but I don't know how to read a blueprint. Some of you guys do. You're a lot smarter than I am. But I do know one thing about blueprints. On every single blueprint, there's a name or maybe a stamp, but it's the name of the designer of the structure, right? Of the plan. The name of the architect. And if we could find the blueprint for the family, the original blueprint for the family, you know whose name would be on it? Not a designer, but the designer. God's name would be on it. Because God is the originator of the family. He's the one that designed it. He's the one that created it. He's the one that called for it. The idea of family, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that men just came up with one day and said, hey, you know, I think we should start families. That's not how that happened. It wasn't an accident. It was part of God's plan. And in Genesis 1 and 2, what we discover is that God created the entire cosmos in six days. And after each day of creation, God looked at everything He made, and the Bible said God saw that it was good. And then on the sixth day of creation, after God created the crowning jewel of His creation, the human race, the Bible says that God saw it was very good, Genesis 1.31. But do you know the first time that God ever said something wasn't good? It's when he looked at the first man, Adam, and saw that he was alone. Genesis 2.18, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God gave Adam a wife. God gave Adam a bride. And in Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. What's God doing here? He isn't just creating male and female, he's doing that, but he's also creating the first family. And that's why after God gave Adam his bride, the Bible goes on to say that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have children. This is the start of the first family. And as you read on in God's Word, God will lay out a plan for what the family should look like so that the family can be everything that he intended it to be. But here's the thing, even though the family was God's idea, Satan has a tendency of hijacking what God intended for our good. And I think that's exactly what happened at the very beginning, and it's what continues to happen all these years later. See, I think it's important for us to realize that in our day and age, there are two, two major voices competing for our attention. And these two voices have been competing for the human race's attention all along. They're very different. They say two very different things, especially when it comes to the concept of family. And they lead to very different results. The first voice is the most common. It's the one that probably our culture is most familiar with. It's the voice of Satan. Satan cries out to us and tempts us. And our culture? Our culture listens to Satan. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, The whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world. 
is under the influence of the evil one. People listen to him whether they realize it or not. But then there's another voice. And this other voice, it's the voice of Jesus. Jesus is also crying out to us. And Jesus is trying to let us know God's plan for the family. He's trying to let us know how to have healthy, strong, vibrant families. And he's saying, listen to me. In fact, in John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's letting us know there are two major voices out there competing for our attention. And you've got to decide who you want to listen to. Jesus is trying to let us know the path we need to take. He's trying to let us know what a healthy family looks like. But oftentimes we're not listening to him. And so what I want to do today is make sure that we as a church recognize the difference between these two voices. Because like I said, these two voices are vastly different and they lead to vastly different consequences. And so let's look at this first voice, which is the voice of Satan. And Satan, as he talks to us, he points us in the direction of selfishness. Satan wants us to be selfish when it comes to our relationships because he knows something. He knows that selfish tendencies lead to disorder, disunity, at least all sorts of trouble. The Bible says this in James 3.16. It says, where there is selfishness, there is also disorder and every kind of evil. evil. See, the Bible teaches that by focusing on self, what we end up doing is not focusing on God. When we become completely absorbed in self, we end up ignoring who God is and what God wants for our lives, what he's willing to do within our lives. And so Satan says, your life is all about you, and therefore your family, it's there for you. Your family is there to serve you, your needs. And so you should be getting what you want out of your family. And so as he points us in the direction of selfishness, Satan says, it's okay to be stubborn. It's okay to hold your ground and never give in. You need to do that because your family is there for your personal happiness. It's there for your own wants and needs. So make sure you always have the upper hand. Don't apologize. Don't give in. Don't say you're sorry. Don't forgive. Don't compromise. You stand your ground because your family exists to meet your needs. It's all about you. Be stubborn. That's what you need to do. Make sure you always have the upper hand. And he says, if you don't get what you want, the next thing you need to do is you need to slander your family. You need to let them know it, but don't tell them directly. Just badmouth them. Talk about them. You know, when you go to work, and ladies, when you're around all your lady co-workers, talk bad about your husband. Let him know what a jerk he is, about how he's lazy and never does anything to help you, and he never spends quality time with the kids. You just badmouth him all the time. Men, when you get together with your buddies, do the same thing. You talk about your wife, about all the ways that she nags you and the stuff that she wants you to do or the stuff that she doesn't do and she should do. You just talk about your wife. Go ahead, slander them. And the hope is that other people will pile on and they'll badmouth your spouse as well. But the problem is, if those people do that, they're really not your friends. The Bible says if you have a problem with somebody, you go to that person first. And that includes our family members. You have a problem with your spouse? You don't go talk to somebody else first. You talk to them about it. You communicate. Now, I'm not saying that you don't seek professional counseling or help if you need it. I'm not saying that at all. But you know what I'm saying. Don't go out and talk about your spouse. Talk to your spouse. And talk to God about your spouse. Don't slander them. But Satan says, hey, it's okay. You're not getting what you want. It's okay. Go out and badmouth them. 
And then Satan says, hey, listen, if that doesn't work, then you do what you want to do. And oftentimes what that leads to are things like sexual impurity. Again, life is all about your happiness. And if you're not happy in your marriage right now, go out and find somebody that will make you happy. If your needs are not being met, go out and find a way to have your needs met. Go to that bar. Flirt with that coworker. Go to that website. Do whatever you need to do in order to make yourself happy. Now, maybe Satan doesn't tempt you, tempt you with sexual impurity, but I guarantee he does tempt you in some way that will disrupt your family, the health of your family. And he says, you just chase after that desire. It'll make you happy, and all it's going to do is disrupt your family. It's going to hurt your family, hurt the ones that you love. Because Satan wants you to think that life is all about your personal status. But you feeling good about yourself and other people having a positive image when it comes to your life. And so he says, hey, you go out there and do what you need to do in order to rise, uh, to be, to rise up in the social ladder of life, to have better status. You go out and you be a workaholic. That's okay. It doesn't matter if you don't have quality time with your family. That's all right because really what you're doing is you're giving them more status by making more money. Or you go out and you do that crooked or shady deal. You do that even though it might compromise your convictions because, again, it's all about your status. And your family will benefit from that if it works. Life is all about your personal status and style and stuff. So go out there and do those things because that will make you happy. And Satan, he uses selfishness to cripple and destroy our families. Now, here's the thing. Satan doesn't present any of this stuff the way I just did. He's a lot more slick. He's very careful with how he does things. The Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So he can make you think that all this stuff is actually coming from your own heart. You're just following your heart. Sometimes he can even convince you that doing this stuff is actually from God. I've had people literally come to me and say, hey, I need to do this because God wants me to be happy in life. And what they're telling me that they need to do is something the Bible says we should never do. But their rationale is, hey, God wants me to be happy, which, by the way, God wants us to be holy. But they, Satan's telling them, hey, God wants you to be happy so go out and pursue this or do this. I kid you not, I had a man tell me one time, and he was dead serious, that God wanted him to leave his wife and have an affair or marry his secretary because God just wants him to be happy, and he's not happy in his marriage. He wasn't happy in his marriage. Satan's slick. He can convince us that what we're doing isn't wrong to the point that what Satan prescribes, we just see it as normal. That's what everybody's doing. And so we see unhealthiness as normal. And we've been in an unhealthy family dynamic for so long that we think that's the way it is. That's how everyone lives until we discover that God created us for so much more. I've mentioned before in past sermons that my son Alex is playing soccer this year. And I took him home from practice the other night. And immediately when he got in the car, he does what he always does. He took off his shoes. He had cleats on and his cleats were muddy and wet from practice that night. And he took them off 
and he left them in my back seat. I don't know why he does this, but every time he gets in the car, he takes off his shoes. doesn't matter if we're going for a short distance, long distance, whether it's cleats or tennis shoes or sandals. He kicks off his shoes. I have no idea why, but he does it every single time. And so we got home the other night, and his shoes were already off. He ran inside once we got in the garage, and I didn't realize he left his cleats in the back of my car. So the next morning, I went to get in my car, and there was this awful smell. I mean, it stunk. It stunk bad, and I didn't have time to investigate and realize what it was. I thought, well, maybe we left food back there. Or I don't know. Maybe something died back there. I don't know, but I didn't have time to figure it out because I was in a hurry, and so I left, and I did a lot of driving that day, and as I, as I drove throughout the day, you know, I got used to the smell to where it wasn't that bad anymore, and I got home later that day, I pulled in the driveway, and Allison and the kids were out front playing, and so they ran up to the car. And Allison, I had my window down, Allison leaned in to give me a kiss. She does love me, folks, I promise. She leaned in to give me a kiss, and when she did, she immediately jerked back, and she was like, oh, Chad, you stink. And I was like, well, thanks, hon. I appreciate that a lot. She said, no, seriously, you do. It's rank. And I was like, no, it's not that bad, is it? And she said, get out, go inside, and come back. So I did. I got out, went inside the house, and I came back out, and then I realized, what she had already smelled. It was. It was really, really bad. But I had just gotten used to it. I'd been in my car all day, and I'd just gotten used to it. And that's what happens sometimes when it comes to an unhealthy family dynamic. You just get used to it, and you think, hey, that's the way all families are, until you see a family that's doing it God's way, until you see something different. And then you think, well, holy cow, that family doesn't fight like we fight. That family doesn't pick at one another like we pick at one another. That family is not in constant competition with one another like my family is. They're not always at each other's throats or they're not using one another for their own advantage. They actually spend quality time with one another. They actually put each other's needs above their own needs. Never seen that before. And that's when we discover there must be another voice out there. There must be another path to follow. That voice is Jesus' voice. And Jesus, he's going to tell us the exact opposite of Satan. He's not going to tell us to be selfish. He's going to tell us that if you want a healthy, dynamic, vibrant family, you've got to be selfless. He's going to give us some action steps for how to do that. And the first thing he's going to say is, you've got to seek God. You've got to seek God first. You've got to put him above everything else. Make him the center of your life. And when you do, he will reshape your life. He will reshape your family. And when you put him first, everything else in life will find its proper place. In fact, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, live righteously, and he, God, will give you everything you need. In other words, focus on God first and God's plan for your life first. And then after you do that, everything else you need will fall into place. Let me illustrate it like this. Over to my right, I've got a fishbowl. Let's say this fishbowl represents your life. And then I've got a rock. And this rock represents God because God's our rock, right, in life. And then I've got a container of marbles. And I'm not going to hold this for very long because it's kind of heavy. But these marbles... They represent everything else in life. They represent the stuff we pursue, the stuff we chase after, the stuff we spend our time with, both good and bad at times, depending on how you use them. So let's say these marbles, and this is going to be loud, so let me just prepare you for that. Let's say these marbles represent our, you know, the cars we drive. 
and the homes we live in. These marbles represent our jobs. These marbles represent our hobbies and the different activities we're a part of. Maybe these marbles represent our education, or they represent the time we even spend with our family members. They represent our resources in life. These marbles represent everything in life that we do and that we participate in. And here's the thing, if you put all this stuff first, as well-intentioned as you may be, if you put all this stuff first, and then you try to fit God into your life, what happens is, He doesn't fit. Now, you may get part of Him in there, you may get a taste of Him or a piece of Him, but you don't get His full presence in your life. But here's the thing, the Bible teaches when you put God in first and put Him at the center of your life, then everything else you need in life will fall into place. When you put God first, everything else fits perfectly. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to your life, everything else that you need. So first, Jesus is going to say, seek God. But then second, He's going to say, surrender. And what He's talking about is surrender your pride. Jesus is going to look at you and say, haven't you watched enough of the Kardashians to know that putting yourself first in your family doesn't work? It just doesn't work. So realize there is a designer for the family and follow his instructions. Put your pride aside. Put your arrogance aside. Humble yourself and realize you need help. And so seek his help and do it his way. The next thing Jesus is going to say is, you need to then sacrifice. Once you surrender to God's way of life and way of doing the family, then you need to start making sacrifices for one another because that's what Jesus did for you. In fact, in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Uh, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. See, when you do this in relationships, when you value others above yourself, guys, this works. This is the recipe for a healthy family dynamic. Valuing another person above yourself is the key to having a strong, deep relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, whoever. And the reason why that's the key it's because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. So when you sacrifice your time, your money, your own personal ambitions in order to spend time with your spouse, spend time with your kids, in order to lift your family members above yourself, empower them, encourage them, enhance their lives, I'm telling you, it works. It leads to a strong family dynamic. And the last thing that Jesus is going to tell us is we need to serve we need to serve together. By that I mean serve God together. Don't practice your faith in isolation. Set an example that God is going to be the center of your life and the center of your family life. That you're going to worship Him together. You're going to pray together. You're going to give together. 
You're going to make sacrifices for him together. You're going to serve together. I have talked to couples, married couples, who have told me, you know, we just don't talk about religion with one another. We just don't talk about our faith. And I'm like, you don't talk to your own spouse about your faith? What's up with that? As if that's a good thing. The Bible says the exact opposite. That's a lie Satan wants us to believe. We need to be practicing our faith together, serving together. And when we serve together, when we serve our God together as a family, God will work within our family unit in powerful, powerful ways. And so Jesus says, you do this stuff. What happens is you will have a strong family. Your family will be marked by strength rather than weakness. And what will end up happening is within your family, you will experience satisfaction. In other words, you will have contentment in your family. You will have joy you will have trust and honesty within your family union because you will, you will finally have a family like God wanted you to have from the very beginning. You will also experience stability, meaning that you won't have to, um, you won't have to worry about your spouse cheating on you. Your spouse won't have to worry about you cheating on, on, on them. You will have stability in the sense that your family members will know that you love them and you will know that they love you and that everyone always has each other's best interests at heart. Now again, you're not perfect. It doesn't mean the parents aren't going to discipline their children anymore or anything like that. But even during the rocky times, your love for one another will be strong. You will also within your family experience simplicity, meaning your attitude, your goals, your daily behavior, your daily routine won't add more pressure to your family but instead it will enhance your family. And within your family, you will have substance, meaning you will find meaning and purpose together. Guys, loving like Jesus, and that's what we're called to do, right? That's our mission statement here, to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Loving like Jesus starts in our homes. Don't try to go out and love like Jesus in the world until you're first loving like Jesus in your home. We will never be able to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 until we are first loving like Jesus with those we're closest to, those that God has placed in our daily lives, our family members. We're supposed to love our spouses, love our children, love those we live with as Jesus has loved us. And how did Jesus love us? He gave up everything for us. He made time for us. He valued us above his own comforts. He humbled himself so that we, you and me, could be lifted up. That's what he asks us to do, to love one another within our own home as he has loved us. That's what he wants from each of us. And that's what I want to do within my own family. Because I want to be transparent with you just for a moment. And I'm going to share with you my biggest fear. Some of you guys may think my biggest fear is wind because I've talked about that before. I do have a, I have a huge fear of high wind. This past Wednesday night was terrible for me. We had all those tornado watches and stuff going on. Um, and I, was, I got like two hours of sleep Wednesday night. And then I got to the office that, mor that next morning. I was talking to people. I was like, hey, did you guys sleep last night? They're what tornado watches? You know, you guys are used to them. You don't even care. You go to bed with all these warnings and stuff going on. Those weather people, they freak me out. Seriously, uh, they're nuts. But I was scared to death most of the night. Yes, I am scared of wind. I've told you that before. But that's not my biggest fear. 
My biggest fear is doing all this great stuff for the church and losing my family because I've seen it happen over and over again. I was having lunch one day in a neighboring town where I used to live. I was having lunch with a guy and this other gentleman walked up to me and he's, you're Chad Baradas, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, and I didn't recognize him. I wasn't sure who he was. And he said, I'm so-and-so's son. And as soon as he said the name of his dad, I knew exactly who he was. Like, oh, yeah, I know your dad. His dad was a well-known preacher in that area, had served this one church for years, and the church had grown and did a lot of great stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, I know your dad. And I said, I think the world of your dad. And he looked at me and kind of went, huh, as if he didn't think the world of his dad. So we talked a little bit more, and I invited him, do you want to pull up a chair and sit with us? And he did. And he began to tell me about his story. And he told me a lot about the relationship he had with his dad. I didn't intend for that to happen. I didn't know that was going to happen. He just kind of let loose. And he said, you have a son, don't you? I was just like, yeah, I have son Alex. Addie hadn't been born yet, so I just had Alex. I was like, yeah, I got a little boy, Alex. And he said, make sure Alex always knows that you're there for him as much, if not more, as you're there for anyone else in the church. He said, my dad, he was always there for people at the church, but he was hardly ever there for me. He said, I can't tell you how many ball games my dad promised he would be at, and he wouldn't show because someone in the church needed him. He said, I can't tell you How many times my dad said he would be there to help me do something and he wouldn't show because someone in the church needed him. He said, my dad missed my high school graduation because someone in the church needed him. And then he said, what my dad missed was that I needed him. And I looked at this guy and I said, have you told your dad this? He said, no, we haven't talked for over a year now. He said, I got two siblings. They don't talk to him either. He said, and my mom, oh, they're still married. They don't believe in divorce. They'll never get divorced. But he said, there's not much of a a relationship there, not much of a marriage there. They're just two strangers that live in the same house. He said, my dad spent his life serving everyone but his own family. And he looked at me, and with tears in his eyes, he said, don't do that to Allison, and don't do that to Alex. I tell you that not because I feel like I'm in jeopardy of losing my family at this moment. But my biggest fear is that happening. I don't even want to come close to that. And you don't have to be in ministry for that to happen. There are a lot of people who are successful businessmen and women, successful teachers, successful doctors, attorneys, successful nurses. They're successful in a lot of things that they do. And maybe they're not successful in their jobs, but hey, they're well-known. They're popular in their communities. Everybody knows their name. They recognize them. People want to hang out with them. There are people that get awards and accolades but they lose their own families. 
Don't do that. Ushering a revolution of love starts in our homes. And that's why as we implement this new vision here at First Church, we're going to do everything we can not to put pressure on families, but to enhance them. There are some churches that when they roll out new stuff, they just program people to death to the point that their own people don't have time with their families because they're too busy doing things for the church. We're not going to do that. There are some churches that they have just all these meetings all the time, and if you're part of this group or if you're on this committee or whatever, you've got to just meet all the time to the point where there's a different meeting at church every single night, and as you serve, the church takes you away from your family. We don't want to do that. We want to be a church that enhances families, where families serve together. We want to be a church that empowers families, that strengthens families. So as we implement this vision, we want to challenge you. We want, to, we want to challenge you to love your family members as Jesus has loved you. To commit to loving your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your grandparents, your stepdad or mom, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, whoever you live with, whoever you call family. We want to challenge them, challenge you to love them as Jesus has loved you. And I'm telling you, when we do that, it works. It's not just the recipe for a strong family. That's the recipe for changing a culture. Loving like Jesus, unleashing a revolution of love, starts in my home and in your home. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to open up your word and study. And Father, in this moment, I just thank you for our families. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we take our families for granted. And God, we don't want to do that because we know you're the designer of the family and you want our families to be the best they can be. So Father, I just pray that you strengthen the families within this church so that we can strengthen families throughout the 918 and beyond. And as we do so, that we will change the culture we live in as we know it. It's through the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.